American author Alan Lakin, has, uh, he was a time management kind of guru. He said, planning is bringing the future into the present so that you can do something about it now. And I would argue in some ways, I, I think that's exactly what John the Baptist as a message really is. His, 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 his statement around sort of the future being at hand, being, being present, because this is everything that people have been waiting for. This is exactly what people have been looking forward to for so long. This crowd, which as far as uh, Matthew seems concerned, is uh, predominantly a Jewish crowd from Judea, from Jerusalem, from the surrounding area, and they're longing for the future. And I think John's here to say the future is it's coming. It's right. We're on the edge of it. People get ready. This is, this is what's coming in a call to repentance. Now, before we dive too much into the text, let me, um, I did this a little bit at the beginning of, Ma- of Matthew. Let's make sure we understand the crowds uh, and who we are dealing with in the story. Uh, we certainly deal with the Pharisees and Sadducees in the story. Uh, just so you know, uh, most of those groups um, really show up between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, the Pharisees kind of came out of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, you had a whole crowd that was reflecting on how they ended up in captivity, wondering what, where things went wrong. And, and we're really dedicated to go, we are going to study Torah. We are going to know our Torahs. We are going to practice Torah the best we can. And any violation of Torah, we want to stay away from. And so they, they continued to add rules and, and make sure that the, the Torah was fenced as almost as they would term it. Um, so, uh, but in that process, the Pharisees were also quite uh, often guilty, and this is something Jesus will confront them about, of um, treating anyone sort of on the margins as um, as less than. Uh, there was definitely some pushing out. Uh, so instead of... Uh, the Torah would say, like, when you touch a leper, here's the process for cleaning yourself. Instead of going, well, that, that's, that's a law expecting us to interact with lepers, they took it as, therefore, we should never interact with a leper at all. And so um, the Pharisees were certainly this crowd. So they cared deeply about the Torah. They, for their zeal for God, they were doing what they were doing. But they missed the weightier things of mercy and justice. And Jesus will confront them about that. The Sadducees were sort of the the priestly political class in charge of the temple. Uh, This is the group that is setting up booths all through the temple and extorting people's money. Um, They're using their power to actually kill political enemies. Uh, They're kind of buddy-buddy in some ways with Rome. Uh, They are uh, abusing their positions and power all over the place. You have a a community that's not really mentioned uh, in the New Testament, though I think today we're going to talk through some hints of it, Uh, and that's what's called the Essenes. Uh, or the Qumran community. Uh, we uh, really know Qumran from the Dead Sea Scrolls probably more than anything else. Uh, we found tons and tons and tons of first century literature uh, in these caves in the middle of the Dead Sea, or near the Dead Sea, of this whole community uh, that lived out uh, in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, they were separatists. Uh, they were a whole bunch of people looking at the country of Israel going, everything is jacked up in this country. Uh, and they were a, a decent amount of priestly people. Uh, and so there were Levites and folks like that. And they all went out to the desert uh, to be really serious about their scriptures. And so they copied it and copied it and copied it. That's why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and um, had a certain kind of zeal, a certain kind of separatism. Uh, basically, like, everybody has this wrong, and we're the only ones that have it right. And so they are living out in the desert. 
Uh, and then we have Judeans mentioned in the text too. These are all the, the, the people on the south end of Israel. Uh, this was a, probably a slightly more wealthy collection of people than the Galilean crowds. Uh, they would have been slightly more sophisticated, maybe a little more Greek uh, in terms of some cultural enormous uh, as well. And so that, that tended to be all, all the different groups. Uh, and so uh, let's talk through this text. We're going to talk about the man of John. We're going to talk about the moment that he's in and then the message that he's bringing. So first, let's talk about this man named John the Baptist. What do we know about John the Baptist? What's his relationship to Jesus? Yeah, he's family, right? We don't know that from Matthew, but we do know that from Luke, that they're, they're some sort of family. Cousins is, is the likely um, familiar terms in, in Hebrew are sometimes um, nuanced, but likely a cousin of some sort to Jesus. So he's probably grown up with him. He's probably interacted with him. He probably knows Jesus up to this point. Where is John at? Where? It's in, yeah, wilderness, yeah, the wilderness of Judea. Okay, let's talk about that. Here's a map. You know I love maps now. All right, so this whole red area um, is the wilderness of Judea. Now the topography, and there's a reason I picked the top, top, topological map, um, is you have the Mediterranean Sea on the far left, you have mountains. When moisture goes up mountains, guess what it doesn't do? It doesn't go very well to the other side of mountains. So most of the time, uh, you get deserts on the other side of mountains because the mountains suck most of the moisture out of the air. So Jerusalem uh, is kind of on this mountain range that comes up from the Mediterranean, uh, right kind of between the Dead Sea and um, the Mediterranean. It sucks all the moisture out of the air. So this whole backside is like brown and desert and there's not a whole lot going on in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, you have the Jordan River, uh, and then Kasser el Agahud, which is likely the site that we're talking about today. Uh, we had the chance to go here uh, this summer. Here's a picture of our lovely family, and that's the Jordan River. So if you have these giant pictures of the Jordan, it's not quite like that. Now, we don't know back then exactly how big it might have been. Certainly, there's a whole lot of irrigation pulling a lot of water out of the Jordan nowadays. Um, but it is a really insignificant river uh, if you would go to visit. It is not like the Mississippi or anything like that. Um, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty tiny through a, a fair amount of this land. Uh, and we got to experience a, a lot of the wilderness uh, through that day that we went out there to visit. Uh, here's a picture of us on top of uh, Masada, uh, looking out over the Judean wilderness and the Dead Sea. Here's one more picture. That's about how green and verdant uh, this area really is. Um, it is. It is a desert for the most part. This is the wilderness that John is out in. And it's right by Qumran, um, which if we go back to that map, um, you have the Qumran community right there next to Jericho, uh, and Gedi, which is this little oasis area that David certainly visits, uh, and then the Dead Sea as well. This is the wilderness of Judea. This is the place that John is. Um, it is um, a very brown and in a lot of ways desolate place. There's just not a lot of people living out in this places. And John's out there in this wilderness as a herald. He comes preaching, almost like uh, an introducer, to, like if you were... Um, somebody that introduces the president when they walk in, like, now comes the president of the United States, like, please stand for the president, that sort of heralder, that sort of uh, declarer that stands uh, before the more significant individual. And he's a prophet. Uh, and the text makes this quite clear. Uh, let's even look at verse four. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now, 
good question asking Bible students. We, we talked about this in staff this week and Danielle's like, that seems like an interesting detail. Matthew doesn't waste time adding details. So at some point when the outfit is mentioned, we should be like, why do we care what, Matt, what John is wearing? Like, that's great. Like he, he dressed kind of weird and ate kind of weird things. But Matthew has intentions to every word that he includes. And it should, if you are a first century Jew, has memorized our scriptures, should take your brain immediately somewhere. Because we have a story in scripture where this king of Judah gets injured. The king of Judah gets injured and he wants to send some messengers to this really pagan God to say, hey, uh, I just need to know kind of what's, what's going to happen to me. And then you hear this prophet Elijah cuts off these messengers and Elijah cuts off the messengers and sends them back to the king with a pretty negative message. It's not so kind to the king. And then this interaction happens, 2 Kings 1. Uh, he said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, ah, it is Elijah the Tishbite. And so at some level, this is what John is doing. It's like John's wearing or Elijah's Halloween costume <laughs> out in the desert. Like this is intentional on John's part. And where do we find John again? Judean wilderness, okay. Do we know, and if, this is all Bible nerd questions. If, if you know the story of Elijah, does something happen in the wilderness in Judea? It's like one of the most significant events in his life, which he gets like taken up into heaven, out in the Judean wilderness. This is like the last moment in Elijah's life is here in this place. And this is where John is. He's out here baptizing and he's wearing the Elijah costume at the like significant place. It's like wearing a Mickey Mouse costume at Disney World. Like this is significant in how it's, what it's trying to communicate. Now, what do we know about Elijah? Because Matthew definitely wants to draw our attention to this Elijah type character. What do we know? What happened in Elijah's life? This is why we work on Old Testament stuff on Sundays. It's great. So you had Elijah. He's his prophet uh, during the various years of Israel being not so wonderful. And um, he's a bit of a fiery kind of guy. Uh, he's got some, some, some strong opinions and some fire about him. And at some point, uh, he calls God to some of the stuff that God has already said he would do. God's like, look, if, in Deuteronomy, he's like, look, if you start practicing all this idolatry, I will shut up the skies. And Elijah's like, yes, God, go do that. So, Elijah, so the God stops rain for years. Um, it causes all sorts of famine. He has to interact with a widow, has no food, all this kind of stuff. There's, there's, there's collateral damage to some of the work that Elijah does. And then he has this interaction with all these prophets of this pagan nation. He calls down fire on this altar and they're unable to call down this fire on the altar. And it's amazing. And all, he basically proves all their prophets wrong. And um, it's this amazing moment. But guess what? In Elijah's story, like nothing changes after that. It's not like the whole country moves to repentance. The people in charge uh, get overthrown. None of that happens. And suddenly the queen's like, we got to kill this Elijah. And now he has to run. And he's in this cave. And he's, he, he seems all frustrated and angry and, and uncertain of who he is. And he feels like, in some ways, it seems like he's the only one that cares about the things of God. And God kind of reminds him, hey, like, I got plenty of people in this country. Like, I'm not always in the, the storm and the tornadoes and the big events. Like, I'm still doing a work. And so God has to correct this sort of 
Elijah fire figure in some ways, but he's always been this firebrand. And I think that's very much what we see in John. He's this firebrand preacher out here in the desert acting in some ways like Elijah. And they were expecting this kind of Elijah type character. One of the last prophets to speak in the Old Testament says this, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And it's Malachi 3.1. And then Malachi will continue by the end of uh, just the next chapter over. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so at some level, there's a bit of a, a puzzle that they were always sort of waiting for of who is this Elijah character? Where should we be looking for him? What should he be like? And I think that's, they're, they're wondering right now, is John, are you that guy? And there seems to be debates throughout all the letters of exactly um, um, people wondering who this John is. But I think Matthew is definitely pointing us straight to Elijah. And he's also uh, likely part of, or had been part of this Essene crowd. We have all sorts of uh, ideas. He's out here in the Judean wilderness. Uh, which is exactly where this whole community exists in Qumran. He's quoting Isaiah 40, which is literally like the tag line of the community, that they would be the voice crying in the wilderness. Um, he's eating food that the Levites basically, or the, the Essenes basically ate, um, which they were allowed to eat locusts. is one of the insects that's allowed uh, according to Torah. But when you live in the desert, there's not a lot of animals. And so your option are um, things like bugs, and then uh, I forgot to show the picture. Um, or um, the only thing that really grows out there dates. Um, so date palms uh, grow out there. They're there. They're there. Um, so when you're driving out there, you just see date farms. And so the honey is likely, there's really no bees in the desert. Uh, the honey that we're talking about, it's really just the word syrup. Uh, it's likely date syrup uh, that he would have eaten out there as well. And so, um, so the Essenes had their own versions of baptism. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, and many of them were Levites. Who do we know John's dad is? He's a priest. He would have been in this group. And so likely he's one of these people acting in the spirit of Elijah and Malachi, um, fulfilling what Malachi said. Now, going back to that Malachi text, who is coming after this Elijah character? Who's Elijah preparing the way for? Yeah, the, the Lord, God, Yahweh in some ways. That's what they're expecting, that God is coming. And so for John to kind of do his thing and then start pointing to Jesus, this is exactly what um, that, that Matthew is helping to us to see. So any time people are like, well, they didn't really declare Jesus as God. He was just a great guy. That's not what Matthew's intention at all is in this text. So let's go to the moment that they're living in. Because Matthew wants to, uh, to understand how clear this moment is. And he moves uh, to talk about this prophecy. Verse 3. For this is he who has spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Isaiah 40, as I mentioned, this is like the tagline of this community. But Isaiah 40 is a really important moment because in the book, it, it launches into this whole section that addresses these exiles. Uh, it's likely the, the, the time that they've had two generations in a foreign land, um, but there's good news coming. So this is years and years before Jesus' time. There's good news coming. There's good news for Zion and Jerusalem saying, here's your God. He is coming again. He's going to return to the land. There's a new exodus back to our place. Now, once again, there's a good question. Did the return come with the sort of triumph and peace and restoration that they expected? Did Israel go back and everything was perfect? No. No. There were definitely some language in Isaiah that they would be like, 
this doesn't feel like we're there yet. And they're struggling with this. They still had a foreign power oppressing them. They had tons and tons of rebuilding to do. Even after they rebuilt everything, their own sin just seemed to still be a problem. It's like, sometimes we hold up the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as like leadership principles. The end of the book is to go, all of that leadership failed. <laughs> like the walls are now corrupt with certain people. The priesthood's corrupt. Like the whole end of the story is this giant dud to go, we still aren't there yet. But anyways. Um, and so, so not only do you have the sort of um, lack of sort of triumph and this point towards back to Isaiah, but soon, um, uh, right after this Isaiah text, they're going to cease to even hear from God. You have this long period of time between sort of really the end of Malachi to Jesus' birth that God did some miraculous stuff. We get the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah and stuff like that from that time period. But God had gone quiet. And they were all sort of waiting. The, the, the Romans, the Greeks, all those people had come to town. But God seemed extremely quiet. And there was a lot of waiting. Would God keep his promise? And that's where God, Jesus, John enters into the equation to say, look, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've been waiting so long for this moment, and it's so imminent, is what he's calling them to. It's just around the corner. It has drawn near. The future that we have longed for is so close. And by the way, just to bring clarity to language around the kingdom of heaven, um, Matthew doesn't call it the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew, being a Jew, a Jew, writing to Jewish people, likely will not use the formal name of God in his lettering. Uh, so he will, out of respect for the name of God, which is still to this day, my friends growing up used to always write G-D. Uh, to this day, um, there's still the practice of not writing the formal name of God. So um, where the other gospel writers will, in the same phrase, use the kingdom of God. Matthew used the kingdom of heaven, which is really just God's reigning space in general. Uh, and so that's, that's the kingdom of heaven. I actually found this definition to be super helpful uh, and actually just came across it this week. God's reign through God's people over God's place. It's like God's, that's what the kingdom of heaven is really about. And it's coming close. It's God's space. And the king is coming. And John almost acts like a hinge between the old and the new. He's like this hinge point in the scriptures. Even Jesus calls him the last great prophet. Yet he's sort of the, the, the least, the first to enter into this new kingdom, this old creation to new creation. And he's this hinge point prophet uh, between the two. Which brings us to his message. Matthew in verse 2, verse 7 to 10, and then 11 to 12 gets a sort of a final challenge. These are sort of his messages. Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, like we said. And in some ways, this is totally good news, bad news, right? Like the kingdom is here. Good news. This thing we've been waiting for is here and is drawn near, which is also good news. The story of scripture is not God staying afar and us having to figure out how to get back to him. The, 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 the scripture is that God has drawn near. The kingdom of God is coming, bursting forth into this world. It's a message that Jesus will bring too. By the very next chapter, Jesus says the exact same message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus will do healing and speak about the kingdom of God. And when he heals people, he even says, this is the kingdom of God coming to this house. And they expected justice and healing and peace and forgiveness. And Jesus will remind that it comes in surprising ways. And they often miss it. And even John the Baptist, I would argue, in some ways misses it. But we'll get there later in Matthew. 
But the bad news, I think John's saying, but we're not ready for this. Repent. Now, if I say repent, what comes to your mind? What did you say? I'm sure. Yeah. There's definitely like the crying altar call kind of moments. What else? Turn around. Yeah, yeah. That's a good, we'll, we'll talk about that definition. What else? I mean, in my mind, especially having spent so many years not in the church, I always think of people with the street signs, um, the little repent, kingdom is at hand, outside of a sporting event, um, just doing, yeah, hellfire brimstone, campus preachers. Um, there's a lot of that experience uh, in my mind. And some of us have negative images. But as Brian pointed out, the, the word um, teshuva in Hebrew um, and metanoite in Greek it carries with this this idea of simply like a, a returning to or turning back towards something, which is interesting because who's John or who's yeah who's John the Baptist speaking to? His his people, right? And he's he's doing what prophets have told in the past. Hey, let's return to the Lord. We somehow we've lost the plot of the story of who we are as a people. Let's return to the Lord. And he's attracting all sorts of people with this very message. So we find in verse 5, a whole bunch of people from Judea and, and Jerusalem are coming out. And I want to say a couple things about baptism. Um, tevila, uh, mikvah, baptizo, all these words that um, uh, uh, speak about baptism. Uh, tevila, uh, especially baptizo, uh, those words carried with it an idea of immersion, though we won't have a debate about immersion versus sprinkling. Um, it was a super regular part of Jewish practice. I think sometimes we, we get into baptism showed up in the Christian church. Um, but a ceremonial a dipping of yourself in the water was a pretty typical part of most of like weekly life in a Jewish person's life. Um, so if you were a woman and you finished your menstruation, you would go down and have to go through a sort of baptism every single time that that happened. Um, you, you would, um, if you were going to temple, you would have to go and immerse yourself in water. Um, there would be some hand washings and stuff like that too, uh, related to food and everything else. If you were going to read the Torah in synagogue, you would have to be baptized before you did that. There was, it was a regular part of synagogue and temple practices. Now, there's something called a tevila teshuva, which is a baptism of repentance. Now, this is a bit more, it's like dust in my, it's a bit more unique. Um, it was often reserved for Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become Jewish, you had to do three things. You had to be circumcised. You would have to bring a, an offering or Corbin to the temple, and you would have to go through this um, baptism um, by repentance uh, to become one. And it would be, you would go down into the waters and come back up. I'm not sure that our picture of John dipping people is actually accurate. Jewish people have no record of ever dipping people, and I don't know if John actually dipped anybody. I think they took themselves into the water, but that's it's another story about practice of baptism. But John... He's not calling Gentiles, is he? At least in Matthew. He's speaking to God's people. And he's calling them to the baptism that says, hey, we've almost gotten to the point where we're not even Jewish anymore. And, and I'm calling our people back to the story, back to the Torah. Like, it's almost like a conversion at this point to come back, this, this baptism of repentance. 
Perhaps John's having this bit of a revival moment. He seems to be going on for a bit um, before Jesus. He seems to go on a bit after Jesus. We find characters in Acts who have been baptized by John, who never seem to know much about Jesus himself. Um, So uh, there's certainly these crowds that are seeing it. But he reminds them in these warnings, uh, I think, a few things. First, being a spectator is not enough. Verse 7, we saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. And so... um, and I would argue, uh, it seems like from the text, I'm not sold that they came to be baptized themselves. They just came out to see what was going on. Maybe to check in on things, perhaps to be seen or uh, connect to this crowd in some ways. But John has some harsh words for him saying, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, Joe Swinson uh, was a... Um, she still is, but a British, British political figure. Uh, she was running to be the leader of her party in England, the Progressive Democratic Party. And at some point, she was confronted by these group, uh, this group of um, uh, environmental activists. And they dress as bees, and they glued themselves to her campaign van. Um, it's, quite a, it's quite a scene. Uh, and um, and they're, they're confronting her about her environmental activism. And she says, look, I agree with you. I came to join one of your demonstrations. Like, I came out and participated in some of the stuff that you guys really care about. And one of the leaders corrected her and said, look, joining us means making three big personal life-changing commitments. And they spell them out. And they said, you didn't join us. You visited us. It's a, it's a pretty stinging rebuke of this leader. In some ways, I would think John is communicating a very similar thing to this crowd of going, don't don't just come out here thinking either you can hobnob with the crowd or even if they want to be baptized. He calls them vipers. And he rebukes them. And remember, these are the religious leaders of the land, groups that will be rebuked throughout these scriptures for different reasons. Pharisees, as I said, for, for being obedient to strictly to Torah, but sometimes neglecting mercy and compassion, the weightier things, and the Sadducees who are abusing their power. And John is confronting this very leadership when they show up. And he's saying, look, being spectators is not enough. Like, part of the reason why he might be even in the desert is because these groups have gotten so off the tracks. And, and God's saying to them, look, just coming out here doesn't mean a whole lot. And even getting dipped in these waters may not mean a whole lot if there's not repentance if there's not a real change in your life. And perhaps that's even some of us, the spectation of Jesus or the church. Maybe a husband and wife drag you here most weeks. You're here for your family's sake. And hear me, I am all for questions. I mean, if the fall wasn't an example, then I am all for questions. I am all for slow and thoughtful thinking, wading through doubts, all that stuff. I think it's a really important part of faith. But also, and I'm, I'm, I hope I'm here with John, I think John and Jesus would both point to, at some point, there's a decision to follow Jesus or not. There's a decision to be made. that we can't just live in this sort of muddy waters of questions our whole life, but at some point, we got to go, yes, I, I think he's, he's the rabbi, the, the, the true Lord that I want to follow. And I don't have all my questions answered. And I'm going to stumble through this, but there's a decision to be made. And instead of following maybe the ways of the world or Netflix or politics or self-comfort, whatever, 
to turn, to, to repent, to turn in a new direction and say, yes, I want to follow the king of the whole thing and to move towards action. So being a spectator is not good enough. Belonging to a good family is not good enough. So he says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Uh, we don't tend to do this quite the same way uh, to, to point to our family of lineage and go, therefore, we are of a certain status. Um, but I think we do feel sometimes comfortable being like, well, I always went to church. My family went to church. I went to church. Um, as if that's a marker of much of anything. There's a personal side of what repentance is. We can't just claim the corporate understanding of it as well. And lastly, just words are not enough. Verse 10, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit, which we just heard the mention of fruit as well, uh, fruit of repentance, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And this is picking up on Old Testament analogies as well. Malachi actually will speak about this again, um, about a uh, sort of cutting down or tearing down and throwing into the fire. And there's a sense that a repentance here is not just a changing of the mind. There's, there's something that should come with it. There's fruit connected to it. It's not just, hey, you accepted Jesus. You acknowledge Jesus as your God. But there's a change of life. And we will see this that much more in Luke as opposed to Matthew. It's very apparent in Luke's gospel because John tells the people, like, repent. And they're like, what does that look like? And he, and he looks at these different people. He says, like, look, if you have two shirts or two servings of food, give one away. And the tax collectors come up, and he's like, look, if you're a tax collector, look, don't, quit extorting people for money. Give, give what's fair. And Roman soldiers come up, and he says, don't, don't use extortion in your power. Don't falsely accuse people. Don't use your position to oppress others. And all this economic, financial, social, dare I say, socially justice-oriented things are connected to the very idea of what repentance and faith do look like. We need to care for the meaning. We need to act responsibly and legally, not use our power unjustly. And these instructions are calling people back. And let's be clear, calling people back to the Torah. Like John's not necessarily ushering in a new way of life at this moment. Jesus will certainly do something different. I think John's suddenly like, hold on, your new way of being a Messiah is not what I expected. But John at this point is simply calling people back to what they already knew of what the Torah is. It's all he's doing. Saying we've lost the point of the story. Uh, Hoffa this week, uh, or last Sunday, we were in a staff meeting and he shared a quote from Josh Howerton, which I think is a quote of a quote from Jeff Vanderstelt, that's okay. Uh, and he says um, this sort of idea that, um, that, that God is calling us to live out probably what we already know. I think so much we, we want to gain more knowledge and gain more knowledge and gain more knowledge, but we're actually struggling to actually do the things that God has already called us to that we already know to do. Like, you want to experience true kingdom life and living, Jesus being on the throne, like abundant, eternal life, well, let's, let's live out what we already know of what God's already called us into. To love your neighbor. That it's more blessed to give than to receive. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't covet people's things. Be content. Rejoice in all things. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Plead the case of the widow. I mean, all the different instructions that most of us already know are part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And let me be very clear. We are not talking about salvation right now. 
We're not talking about a workspace understanding of the world. And I think so often sort of our reformed kind of church circles, um, and that would be sort of a category for our church. There's such a desire to make sure that we always preach a grace understanding of what the gospel message is, that we avoid talking about the fruit of what it looks like to walk with our Savior. And I think John would have a problem with that. Because all these people, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they would acknowledge Jesus, or they would acknowledge Yahweh all day long. It's what they did. Those are jobs. But they weren't walking out what it looked like to be obedient in faith. And John's like, this is not okay. And I think the book of James will say, this is not okay. And it's not just about avoiding sin either. Um, and we'll deal with this a little more when we get to Matthew 12. But there's this idea of like cleaning a house out. There's sort of this analogy like we're cleaning out a house. It says unless we fill it with the right things, all the stuff we cleaned out are just going to end up back in the house. And at some point, the repentance is not just like confessing and trying to get rid of sin, but actually orienting our lives towards Jesus, filling it with the right things, to step into God things. And uh, Sarah pointed this out in my notes, but if there's a feeling like, oh, this is just one more thing to do, like if there's a weight, there's suddenly like, oh, like obedience, yes, there's the things I got to do and, and everything that I got to do to be a Christian. Um, I, I think if that's the feeling about it, that we've missed the point. That the fruit of repentance is that, just that, it's fruit. Which doesn't grow, um, grow in and of itself. Like being grafted into the vine which is the picture that often we get um, also from Jesus. Being connected to the vine, guess what's going to happen? It'll bear fruit. Like if God has made you a fruit tree, you should bear fruit. And if you're stuck feeling like you have more to do, more tasks, more things to add to your list of what it looks like to follow Jesus, then the challenge is also to look at your heart and to look at the way you've set up your life. And are you in community and prayer and scripture and the sort of orbit that God has created for his people to go to let the Holy Spirit work. Like being around the word, being around God's people, doing those sort of things are, are the various avenues that God has used to, to work with the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can actually walk this stuff out. And we're not saved by our fruit, but we are not saved by a fruitless faith. To quote Tim Keller, I won't claim that one. So let's deal with John's closing, uh, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming uh, after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Now preaching, just the John the Baptist, I, I, I told the staff I had a hard time with this because we will get to Jesus later, kind of do some correction on John. So I'm not sold all of that John is saying is like good and excellent theology and we should practice exactly what John is doing. Um, I, I want to be cautious on that. He will have like his own Elijah teaching moment. But John, I think here, is accusing the religious leadership still. And I think it's directly, particularly at the Sadducees. Uh, what do we know about threshing floors? Anybody? All of my agricultural people in the room um, who have threshing floors. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's sort of these larger flat spaces you would um, kind of pick the, the weed up and the berries would fall and you'd separate out the, the chaff, all the stuff you don't want. 
But from scripture, what do we know was built on a threshing floor? Who, who said that? Nice, the temple. Yes, David buys a threshing floor and builds the temple onto a threshing floor. And I would say that Jesus' accusation here against these Sadducees, it's like, look, God's coming to his threshing floor, which I think for them, they would hear the temple. That's his threshing floor. That's, that's the threshing floor that God owns. It's God's space. It's God's temple. It's God's area. And that God is coming and is going to bring down this corrupt collection of leaders in the Sadducees and clean house. That's what God's coming to do. And 40 years after this, he eventually really does. And the Sadducees are no more. But let's also recognize that John's attention is on Jesus really here, the one who is coming. And it's not just with water, but it's Holy Spirit. That would be justice. They'll be setting the world right. He's ushering in this new kingdom. And that's what they expected. This Messiah was going to come. And when he finally comes, and they're really probably expecting this within the next five, to five years or so, that when he finally comes, he's going to set up shop. He's going to enact justice. Uh, God's people are going to be set free from sin. God will dwell with his people again. They're going to live out their original design as the image bearers and as the chosen of God. That is what they're expecting. Now, everything I just said, we would agree with as Christians, and they would hear very differently than we would have heard it, right? And so there's some tension around how much John's expectation of that is exactly what happens in Jesus, but we'll get there. But this is John's pronouncement, and he's expecting all of this stuff to happen in the first coming of Jesus, but we are expecting all this stuff to finally happen in its fullness with the second coming. What are the last words that Jesus says in Scripture? Anybody know? I mean, the Gospels end with various things, or the book of Acts does too, of God saying, I commission you, go make, go make disciples, or you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But at the end of Revelation, Jesus speaks again. He says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. The kingdom of God is once again at hand. The day may be near or far, but it will come. And are we ready to truly meet our king? There's a future coming, but we must bring the future into the present. And we do that through repentance and faith and bearing fruit. That is how we live in the kingdom now. And it's this weird tension, because we do it now, but it's not quite there yet we have the foretaste of what it looks like to actually be kingdom people now. Through the Spirit of God just busting out fruit in our lives. And it does require repentance. It does require a, re a turning or a returning. Or as Martin Luther would say, all of life is one of repentance. It is a constant going back and returning to who Jesus is. And the beauty of the good news is that that's a free process. <laughs> we don't have to go to the temple and offer a certain amount of things. We don't have to act or feel a certain sense of sadness about it all. He has scorned some of the shame that comes with sin and all of those things. But he calls us to come back and come back. And every time, I think Jesus is standing there with open arms going, yes, I will keep using you. There's no depth to the amount of mercy and grace there. We can't out God's grace. But at some point, there's a constant returning to him. 
that our lives should be marked by. And I think John's calling us into it as a way to prepare for him to truly arrive whenever he will come back and a way to step into the kingdom now. So I want to lead us through a prayer out of the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, so we're getting all Anglican here. Uh, and um, a prayer of repentance. And there'll be a kind of a call and response moment to this. And as I say these words, I mean, take them in. There's some weight to the process of repenting. And as I said, it's not just a cognitive thing. It's not just acknowledging the words, but thinking through, all right, what does this actually look like for me to turn from this to something that is true and good and right. So we confess to you and to one another, to the whole community of saints in heaven and on earth, that we have sinned by our own fault in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not forgiven others as we have been forgiven. Have mercy on us, Lord. We have been deaf to your call to serve as Christ served us. We have not been true to the mind of Christ and we have grieved your spirit. Have mercy on us. We confess to you, Lord, all our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience of our lives. We confess to you, Lord. Our self-indulgent appetites and ways and our exploitation of other people. We confess to you. Our anger at our own frustration and our envy for those who, uh, more fortunate than ourselves, confess to you, Lord. Our intemperate love of worldly goods and comforts and our dishonesty in daily life and work, confess to you. Our negligence in prayer and worship and our failure to commend the faith that is in us, we confess to you, Lord. Accept our repentance, Lord, for the wrongs we have done, for our blindness to human need and suffering and our indifference to injustice and cruelty, for all false judgments, for uncharitable thoughts towards our neighbors, and for our prejudice and contempt toward those who are different from us. For our waste and pollution of your creation, our lack of concern for those who come after us. Restore us, good Lord, and let your anger depart from us. Accomplish in us the work of your salvation. By the cross and passion of your Son, our Lord. And that's what we'll close with.